0: Good morning and happy B.C. Day. Scott Schantz filling in for Mike Smith today. Hope you have had a uh, fantastic long weekend. Uh, Let's get into it. We are going to kick the show off this morning talking about... Drug decriminalization. BC is the first province in Canada that has entered into this pilot project. We did this at the beginning of the year, where we decided to decriminalize uh, small amounts of drugs in hopes that this would uh, alleviate some of the pressure on police as they try to, you know, keep uh, on top of things. And people, um, you know, there's a lot of issues around around drugs and overdose and opioids and all of that type of stuff. So we're going to do a little bit of a check in and see. Is it working? And uh, joining me now is a uh, harm reductions and recovery advocate, Guy Felicella. Thanks so much for being here this morning, Guy. I appreciate your time. Thanks for having us, Guy. Okay, so let me just ask you that, that question right off the top. H- uh, how is the decriminalization experiment going? What do you think? We're, we're moving in the right direction, or do we need to change some things?
1: well i mean I mean, it's definitely um uh, removing the, the penalties that come with uh using substances, so that in turn is definitely a, a step forward in the right direction, which removes the, the stigma that surrounds you know a lot of people who use these substances as well, and it gives them the ability to you know not be judged and uh, for using these substances, which you know um enhances their opportunities to access you know other health care or support services so from taking away the criminal justice element, it's definitely a a huge step in the right direction. And, you know, just for using drugs, people shouldn't be punished for, for using drugs, just like they shouldn't be punished if they're drinking alcohol or other drugs. So,
0: okay. Um, so in, in your opinion, then you would say that this is working. Do you feel like it, it is, uh, making a difference in, um, the amount of, like overdoses, or uh, the way that that um, drug use is being perceived on the streets. Well, I I think
1: these are complex issues when you talk about the way drug use is perceived by people on the street, because it's usually how people view people who are using these substances who don't have homes. So they in turn, um, you know, become frustrated with seeing people, uh, you know, if they're using substances outside. But the unfortunate thing is that uh, if we don't want to see public consumption or reduce the amount of public consumption, we need to have inhalation sites and also uh, injection sites that people can use and access, especially if they don't have homes. So if people are using drugs in their homes, uh, you know, nobody really says anything about Mm -hmm. that. But if they're using them out on the street, you know, there's that homeless element behind it. So what we haven't done is we have a bunch of other issues wrapped up and everybody's pointing fingers at decriminalization when it's actually the other issues that haven't been addressed for for decades that have, you know, led to where we are today. So okay. that, part, that part definitely uh, is complex.
0: No question. Yeah, absolutely. So what happens when... Um, the police encounter someone who is using drugs or carrying drugs on the street like let's say um, I'm downtown with my family and we're going to a park and in that park we discovered that there's some people there using drugs I'm um, like worried that that's you know my family is here and, you know there's people using drugs what happens if I call the police and uh, and the police come and encounter people doing that in public
1: well I, I mean you know you, honestly like you, you I mean, I have kids. I don't want people using drugs in front of my kids either. And, and you know, is it happening as much uh, at playgrounds and in parks uh, as, you know, these there are isolated incidents, I'm sure. Um, and, you know, if you are using drugs in, like, a, a schoolyard or you can be uh, arrested by police and your drug's confiscated. So there are elements of decriminalization where if somebody is using substances in those zones that they would uh, still be arrested and still have their drugs confiscated so you know for the majority of people who are using drugs uh you know i think there's some things that can be um you know uh, addressed as well as that uh, but a lot of drug users they don't want to use in in front of kids sure does it happen or somebody's not paying attention that there is a child walking by or something like that I- i'm sure it has happened um so we need to do like more education for even the people who are using drugs but again you know if they did have a place to smoke these substances then we could send them there um which would be you know the ideal component for for us as a society to get behind to say, hey, listen, give them a place where they can use substances or or get them housing so they can use it in there. And, and then, you know, we don't have this public consumption um, for people who are homeless.
0: Hmm. OK. And what is there a worry that because I do like the idea of what you're suggesting of having a a safe place where people can retain, you know, some level of dignity. Um, I've often, when talking about injection sites like insight, um, the way that I've explained it to people is, you know, we can have a drug issue and a a health issue or just a drug issue, right? Like, you know, we might as well offer clean needles. So we don't have to deal with, um, all of the, the things that come along with people reusing needles and all of that type of stuff. So I I do see the advantage there. But is there any concern that um, providing a safe place to do this, it feels like an endorsement of of um, allowing people to, to, you know, abuse drugs as opposed to saying we want to help. We want to provide a safe place, but we also want to help get you clean. Are we lacking that part as well?
1: Well, not, not necessarily, because you know you have to look at, we're not building a connection with people who are using substances on the street. If they're going to a facility, at least there's the opportunity mm, to yeah. have a relationship and a connection with those health services. Anytime I used Insight, I met so many uh, nurses who were totally supportive, and when I needed to go or wanted to go to detox or wanted to go to treatment, that was my pathway out. Could um, these services do I'll tell you right now, if anybody walked into a harm reduction service, especially Insight, which has a detox floor on the top floor – um, and ask to go to detox, there are people there that will help you get into treatment. So this this is the thing is is that people think you know harm reduction enables drug use. What it does do is it enables a connection for people that we're already missing because they're not accessing these services. So we need more of these facilities
0: as a launch pad to help people get to their to their wellness in life. You know what, guy, that's a that's a really great point. And I do appreciate that, the idea of establishing connections. So what when like like, Like, when the police are downtown, say they're, you know, on the downtown east side, uh, sort of walking around doing their thing, they're handing out cards. Is that right? Yeah, well, they're supposed to. Okay. And these cards, they have uh, places for people to find resources to help them, places where they can get treatment, that type of thing?
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. I I mean there's there's really in the downtown east side, you throw a rock, you can access the service, right? Like to if you if you want. And I mean, I think the key component that a lot of the times that we don't realize is that, you know, a lot of people may need recovery and treatment. And, you know, it's really goes for people who want to get it. Um and, and not to say that a need doesn't turn into a want. But we have to also understand that there's complexities with people going to treatment that you know, they're not going to be housed after treatment. So what people are trying to break free from, if there's not adequate housing for them after treatment, why would somebody go, right? Just to be put back in the same environment mm, that they're trying yeah. to break free from. We we really, I mean, it sounds, publicly it sounds fantastic. They all need to go to treatment, mandatory treatment for everybody. However, that doesn't guarantee that, you know, uh, people will stay sober. It took me, you know, decades of trying to finally get You know, over uh, a decade sober now. So, this is a process, and we have to understand that people are trying, uh, you know, to access these services. It's just, and they are accessing them, it's just they're not getting always the desired result that they're looking for.
0: Yeah, clearly it's um, a really complicated issue, and it looks like we're doing like I'm glad that we're doing something as opposed to just trying nothing and and just complaining about what's going on. So there, there obviously are some some more things that need to happen, and it's the the issue is tied together with a lot of other issues. Um, but really do appreciate um, your insight and uh, the way that you look at it, and of course congratulations on your sobriety. As well, it's Guy Felicella, harm reduction and recovery advocate. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Thanks, Scott. Have a great weekend. Scott Johns filling in for Mike Smith, BC Day Long Weekend. Hope uh, the day is just going fantastic for you and that you are not working. Uh, A lot of people working from home now as a post-pandemic world has shown us that working from home is a highly, highly viable option. And a lot of people really, really enjoying it because it offers them a lot of freedoms that working from an office doesn't. You can manage your schedule a little better. You can work in your pajamas if you need to take some time off to like quickly walk the dog or maybe run a few errands. A lot of people kind of do that and find that it really really works for them. But we're discovering that maybe it's not as convenient for employers. I mean, no one should really be surprised by this. But uh, here to weigh in, we're talking with uh, Joe Massoudi. For, uh, he's a senior policy analyst at the DAIS, a public policy and leadership institute at Toronto Metropolitan University. Uh, thanks so much for being here, uh, Joe. I appreciate it.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: So here's the question that uh, that I want to ask. Are we are we being spied on at home remote workers? Because there's this idea that if you work from home, it's like, oh, I have this freedom. My boss doesn't really know what I'm doing because I'm at home. And as long as my work is getting done, it's all good. But now we're learning that perhaps uh, bosses are are not being as as loose with that as we initially thought.
2: Yeah, that's right. And that's exactly um, uh, some of the the reasoning that went behind um, why me and my colleagues um, had conducted a uh, national survey um, exploring remote work, um, particularly focusing on um, how individuals experience um, electronic surveillance. Um, and so uh, our findings actually do reveal that 70 um, percent uh, of, uh, of employees working from home have at least some aspect of their um, of their uh, work being monitored.
0: And, and how are bosses and companies monitoring them? Is it through like if you have a company laptop or a company phone or like where are they getting their information from?
2: Yeah, so some of the the, the top ranked um, uh, aspects of of, uh, remote work being monitored include um, emails, uh, they include chats, uh, that includes, um, uh, so those are some of the top uh, ranked um, aspects, Uh, but we also have much more um, uh, other types of more intrusive. Uh, forms of monitoring, which could include um, keyboard uh, monitoring or uh, computer screen capture or uh, location tracking, um, as well as webcam uh, video recording.
0: So do they have to have like permission or anything to do that? Or is this something that they can just do because you're an employee and they don't have to tell you about it?
2: so uh so in Canada uh, the the main um, mechanisms uh, that would be um, used to regulate um, this type of uh, remote work um, surveillance would be privacy legislation uh, so uh, the the current landscape is that um, privacy laws are quite uh, it's quite a bit of a patchwork so individuals who happen to work in certain sectors um, would have privacy protections through instance through uh, for instance, through the Privacy Act, or through PIPEDA, um, or if, if individuals um, uh, are working for um, a unionized uh, labor force, they would uh, receive some protections through uh, through that avenue. Um, uh, but that leaves aside a whole um, uh, other other employees who don't fall in any of those aforementioned categories. That leaves those individuals uh, with fewer uh, protections.
0: Hmm. Okay. So like our, this is, I think we all sort of have this idea that our bosses are probably able to check our emails. You know, if you have a, a corporate email address, like I have a work provided laptop that I take home when I'm finished my day. And I send all of my work communication through my laptop. I surf all sorts of websites and stuff is like, are my bosses seeing every single thing or is it like, oh, they have certain flagged words. Like if I type in a certain word, then maybe that that gets alerted, Or they act like, is there actually a team of people somewhere, you know, underground seeing every single thing that happens, or is it only when they're alerted to it?
2: Right. So uh, so uh, there's so I guess what what I should probably note here is that there's nothing inherently nefarious um on the part of employers that are looking to, for instance, um, monitor employees, um, that type of, there can be a type of monitoring that takes place that could be very beneficial to the professional growth and development of employees, for instance. I think a little getting a little bit of feedback from your employer, a lot of employees would like, um, that provides a lot of support, uh, again, for, for professional development and growth. Um, but the issue is when that type of surveillance can become excessive, um, that's when um, you get into a whole range of different types of um unintended consequences and costs that come, uh, towards not just the employee, the worker, but all, um, the, the organization, um, and society as a whole, really.
0: Okay. So the, I guess the question is like, how much of this stuff are they reading every single email?
2: So, it depends, I mean, I, I can't really provide you with an, uh, with an answer uh, in terms of um, uh, in, in more of a specific answer, but a lot of that depends on context. There are different types of um, businesses and employers that um, utilize different types of technologies, and it's all very contextual. Um, but um, uh, there has been uh, some of the types of technologies that um, have been um, uh, particularly popular since uh, the pandemic has uh, been, uh, I guess, the rise of uh, what's known as bossware or, or um, software that, that's very capable of um, uh, reading emails. They can be very um, intrusive. They could look into um, your chats. They can go into Internet activity. They can provide um, evaluations and provide that um, information to uh, the manager who can... Uh, and, and and that can influence managerial decisions. So some of the technologies can be very um, invasive.
0: Hmm. Okay, so we should be always aware that, uh, that w- we could be being watched, not necessarily that we are, but that we could be. How is this going to change work from home? Do you think that people are going to start getting busted and be called back into the office because now bosses and employers are finding out that people are maybe not, exactly where they said they were? Uh,
2: So with the so the current trends uh, with automation and the use of artificial intelligence and the lack in um, legal, uh, legislative and uh, regulatory um, mechanisms in place, um, the could amplify the costs and unintended consequences uh, towards employees um, uh, and towards employers as well. So the risks um, that workers would face, for instance, they could manifest themselves physically um, it could lead to um, anxiety, depression, um, higher levels of stress, lower levels of um, job satisfaction, higher levels of um, uh, 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 um, uh, uh, stress and so and so uh those are the types of uh, unintended consequences that could emerge um, yeah.
0: Okay. Like, do you, but do you think that uh, this is going to lead to less work from home because people are going to, they're not going to have the freedom that they thought they had? You know, my boss is aware when I'm not at my desk at home. So I, I need to spend more time at my desk. So I might as well just be back in the office. Do you think like, do you think that we're going to see more people back in the office as a result of this?
2: Uh, So, yeah, sorry. Um, So uh, what I was uh, really getting at is that um, if if, uh, that there needs to be in place um, legal and regulatory measures, uh, because there's a clear gap. Uh, there, and the the trend is that things are moving towards art- artificial intelligence and automation, and that 's making its way into the workforce so it 's not just working remotely that is impacted by this, but it could also creep into other aspects of work so it 's not just working remotely but it 's also on site as well so it 's not like one would be able to uh, be safe from um, surve- the implications of surveillance by switching to on site work.
0: Uh, okay, I see. So it's kind of, it's, we're kind of going to be watched no matter where we are, uh, which, and again, to your point, I'm glad that you made this point as well, that that's not inherently bad. There are some really productive and positive things that come about uh, from bosses checking in. And, you know, like that's that's part of their job is to be managing employees and making sure that they are doing what they're supposed to be doing. It's in everyone's best interest. I get that. Uh, but if, if it's going to happen, whether you're at the office or working from home, at least if we work from home, there's some, um, some freedoms there. You're not spending the money on gas driving in and finding parking and all of the stress that comes with that. So it sort of sounds like perhaps we should just accept the idea that we're going to be monitored to some degree and that's not necessarily a bad thing.
2: Uh, well, the monitoring could uh, eventually uh, uh, lead to some um, some negative consequences. I think that the trend that we're seeing is that uh, the the surveillance is um, um, increasingly becoming sophisticated. Um, I noted some of the earlier types of software that um, um, that are increasing in sales, and a lot of the the, the tech companies that um, sell these types of um, software. Uh, to uh, employers, um, um, they're often, um, employers are often lured in by the different types of their sales tactics, including that it would promote um, efficiency, organizational efficiency, or or that the technology will reduce costs, for instance. And so employers are brought in or are lured into these types of ideas, um, but um, But when you're continuously automating those processes, those can lead to um, a lot of negative outcomes for the uh, employee. It could create decisions that would, um, influence managers and ultimately impact the employee in very real ways including impacting um, um... whether they are promoted whether they're demoted or whether they're even terminated so that's the cause of that's the area of concern uh, that we need to be focused on we need to kind of introduce um, uh, we need to define the guardrails that are that would be necessary um, uh, uh, that would be placed around these types of technologies
0: Interesting. Joe Masudi. he's a Senior Policy Analyst at the DAES, a Public Policy and Leadership Institute at Toronto Metropolitan University. Thanks so much for your time this morning. Really appreciate it.
2: I'm glad to, uh, to, to, to be here. So Thank you for having me.
0: Scott John's filling in for Mike Smith. Happy BC Day Monday. Hope your long weekend has been going just great. Have you heard the term greenwashing? Do you know what that is? It's something that is, uh, common, out there, um, and it's becoming more and more prevalent. Uh, probably might have heard it from the likes of people like, uh, Greta Thunberg, who we love.
3: You all come to us young people for hope. How dare you? You have stolen my dreams and my childhood with your empty words.
0: She uh, was recently scheduled to speak at uh, at a book festival in Edinburgh and she, she actually pulled out. She said she was not going to do it and accused them of this practice of greenwashing. So to find out a little bit more about greenwashing and what it is and how it works, uh, my guest this morning is Amelia Beliveau. She's the Energy Transition Program Manager at Environmental Defence. Thanks so much for being here this morning.
3: My pleasure, thank you for having me.
0: Um, can you let's start off by can you like tell me what environmental defense is and what you guys do?
3: Yeah, Environmental defense is a charity and environmental advocacy organization, and we work with government and communities and individuals to fight for clean water, a safe climate, and healthy communities.
0: Okay, fantastic. What uh, is greenwashing?
3: So greenwashing is when a company or sometimes even a government advertises themselves as being more sustainable than they really are. So it's saying one thing and doing another. So, for example, in the case of the oil and gas industry, companies are spending hundreds of millions of dollars on PR campaigns to promote this idea. That they care about climate action, but they're actually misleading the public when they say that they're working towards solving the problem because their business practices and their plans are to continue to expand oil and gas extraction and production. So we need to be bringing down greenhouse gas emissions, and these actions are speaking way louder than the words and the
0: PR. So it's just something that they do to make the company seem like a little better, a little more environmental, and to kind of take the pressure off?
3: Yeah, to take the pressure off. But also what greenwashing does is that it encourages people to continue to consume products which are actually harmful to maybe our health or the environment, or in the case of oil and gas, causing climate change. And this undermines genuine efforts to be environmentally friendly.
0: Hmm, okay. You mentioned various companies and governments. Um, how common is this? Is like a lot of companies doing it. Um, I mentioned the Edinburgh International Book Festival that Greta Thunberg has pulled out of. Mm-hmm. It, like, give me give me a sort of a rough ballpark. Do you think that this is something that like a lot of companies are doing um, here in Canada or is it on the rise? Do you have any information on that?
3: It's definitely on the rise. I think um, the public perception of climate change and sustainability has certainly shifted to, be an issue that people really genuinely care about people have a lot of concern for the way that uh, the environment and climate has been treated and so with that you see this increase of companies wanting to take advantage of that for their marketing practices Um, so it's definitely on the rise but it's it it's always been a bit of a problem Um, oil and gas companies for example were some of the first to advertise recycling because they knew that if they could convince the public That uh, they could recycle the products and not just leave them in the environment and be polluting. It would allow them to continue to produce and give people that feeling that uh, it wasn't
0: going to be an environmental problem. Hmm, okay. Is there ever a circumstance where maybe a company or an organization just doesn't know enough and they think that, you know, Hey, we'll do this. And this is like a green initiative. And the, the heart is kind of in the right place. Like they generally think gen in general, they think they're doing something that is helpful, but they're just getting it wrong. Does that ever happen?
3: Uh, I don't have any data on that, but I'm sure that there are people who are really well-intentioned, who are trying their best. But that's why it's really important that we uh, go to trusted sources. And I think environmental advocacy groups like environmental defense do a really good job uh, tracking and highlighting the players that are uh, using greenwashing in a nefarious way and that are having real dangerous implications. And I think that, you know, maybe there are little guys out there who are trying their best and I don't fault anybody for trying, but I do think that like we need to be concerned when this practice of greenwashing allows companies, especially the big polluters off the hook for really dangerous and and damaging environmental outcomes.
0: Yeah. And one of the things that I, I often find myself think, I think this way when I see one of those big environmental polluting companies make a statement about some sort of environmental initiative, I kind of ask myself, I'm like, do these people think that we're stupid? Like, we know you're a massive polluter and you're totally just saying this to, to try to dupe us into thinking that you're a little bit better when we know you're not. But like, do people fall for, like, it, it must be working if they continue to do it. Like, are people falling for this?
3: Yeah, I mean, I agree with you in that I think it's a sign of respect to, to treat people with honesty. And so this deceiving of the public is, uh, is yeah, not very respectful of the public's audience. But I, it does work because it only takes a few times of hearing a message in an advertisement over and over to sort of plant that seed that makes you, uh, you know, even consider um, the message as an option. And we're, as much as we all like to believe we're not susceptible, um, it can happen to the best of us. And the thing about these companies, they know that it's worthwhile, which is why they spend the money on it. And really, the most dangerous outcome, I think, of what greenwashing from the, from the big companies or the oil and gas companies is, is that it helps them appear trustworthy, uh, like they want to solve the problem. And then it allows them often to get a seat at the table for policy and government decisions. So they're using that clout and that, you know, that good reputation and leveraging it often to poke holes or delay policies that would uh, regulate that industry's activity and regulate that pollution. We certainly see this with the oil and gas industry um, where they used to use outright climate denial, and that's not really an effective tactic these days because the public has wised up around climate change. But now, rather than you know denying climate change, they say they want to fix the problem, but they're actually uh, using that leverage and they're... Um, reputation to get a seat at the government table and then try and water down
0: effective climate policy. Okay. So let's wrap it up with this, uh, Amelia. How do we combat this? How can we tell if a company's uh, green initiatives are legitimate? And how do we uh, educate ourselves and educate others about the companies that aren't doing this legitimately?
3: Yeah, I think it's important to keep an eye out and think critically about the advertisements you see Um, what's being sold and you know whether that brand is uh, somebody with a trusted reputation I think finding trusted sources like environmental defense who do work on greenwashing to debunk some of the myths that different companies are putting out um, can help you be uh, a little more well equipped to have the facts on your side And then greenwashing can also be unlawful. So, for example, the Competition Bureau of Canada recently launched an investigation into advertisements from a group of oil and gas companies because uh, the content of those advertisements is misleading to the public. So things um, or institutions rather like the Competition Bureau are also there to help consumers uh, know who's on their side.
0: Amelia Beliveau is the Energy Transition Program Manager at Environmental Defense. Environmentaldefense.ca is their website where you can get some more information. Talking about greenwashing, thanks so much for your time this morning. I really appreciate it.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: Scott Schatz filling in for Mike Smith. Happy BC Monday. Hope you're having a fantastic long weekend. We've been talking about greenwashing, environmentalism, uh, what the things that like companies and organizations and even governments do uh, as a way to sort of appear more environmental. They do this to make us feel better about buying their products and to sort of alleviate some of their own guilt when in reality these things may or may not be actually what is best for the environment. And uh, one of the things that has been uh, sort of a topic of conversation, especially here in the Lower Mainland, is single-use plastics. Uh, We've gone from plastic straws to paper straws. We've gone from plastic, like, forks and knives at takeout places to, like, wooden bamboo ones. Uh, People bring their own, which, like, all of these things are theoretically good, but another... Another step in this, in this like line is happening as uh, the government of Canada is considering banning plastic food packaging. Like, you know, when you go to the grocery store, a lot of our food, a lot of the stuff we consume is packed in plastic. And that stuff just gets opened, used that one time and thrown away now or recycled in some cases. But, you know, it gets used once and then goes back into the system. And is this the right thing For the environment. So uh, here to help me unpack and decide and, you know, sort of understand a bit more is David Clement. He's the North American Affairs Manager for the Consumer Choice Center. Uh, Thanks so much for being here, David. Are we going to see the elimination of single-use plastics in our food products?
4: I really hope not because it is backwards
0: policy
4: from a cost perspective. It's backwards policy from uh, a food waste perspective. And it's also backwards policy from an environmental perspective uh, in terms of the, the total emissions used to create the, the plastic um, packaging that we use for food items, uh, which obviously increase their shelf life. Versus the alternatives and what those alternatives would be and the energy required to make those. And so, at at three different very important points, right, we're in high inflationary times. This obviously increases costs. Um, Canadians are using more food banks than feels like ever. Uh, Because of that, this would increase food waste. Um, And it would be worse for the environment um, from a net as- aspect of, of total emissions um, for a variety of different reasons. And so it really is backwards policy and a huge step in the wrong direction.
0: Yeah, and I like how you mention uh, the the plastics thing as it relates to keeping food fresh longer, and would uh, uh, relate to food waste. Can you give some more examples? Uh, because I think one of the things, like as you mentioned, when you just say it sort of um, quickly like that, uh, that it would can that uh, eliminating plastic packaging would contribute to damage to the environment. I think people have, I'll speak for myself. I have a hard time putting that together. Explain to me more how, how that happens, because we think plastic ends up in the garbage, ends up in the ocean, whatever bad, but it's a bit more complicated than that. I'm assuming.
4: Yeah. It's far more nuanced than that. And I'll use an example from a, a European study on baby food, right? The majority of baby food comes now in plastic containers, And those plastic containers are actually 33% better for the environment than glass alternatives. And the reason for that is it requires a lot of heat to create glass. Glass is particularly heavy to transport, um, significantly heavier than plastic. Um, So the transport costs, whether they be by truck or train or both, are higher and so when they looked at the total emissions per unit per item of baby food uh, it was 33 percent higher for a glass alternative and now multiply that by everything else that would be have to be replaced by either um, glass alternatives for food safety reasons um, or paper in many instances, which is not better for the environment um, in most instances either. And we have a real kind of double-edged sword here where it's significant, it's incredibly costly um, and the federal government has admitted that it's costly um, because in the, in the proposal, ironically, um, they've created an exemption Uh, and they've created an exemption for independent grocery stores and health food stores and other smaller retailers. Um, And they did that obviously because it's gonna cost a lot of money and small businesses can only absorb so much, the larger grocery store chains can obviously, they're a little more resilient. Um, So it's acknowledged that it's more expensive. Um, It is likely worse for the environment across almost all product categories, especially when we're talking about food that needs to be airtight and sealed. Mm -hmm. Um, That's where you really have a food waste problem because it's very difficult to package baby food in bamboo uh, or or (laughs) for alternative. And I mean, I say that kind of in a cheeky manner, but it's true. There are food safety requirements that have to be upheld here. Um, And so the alternative for those ends up being glass, which is heavy, bulky, um, not as durable uh, in terms of breaking. Um, And so across the board, you have all of these externalities. And it would appear that the people who want to really push for this legislation either have the horse blinders on and aren't aware or they know that these are the externalities and they don't care, and that's uh, either option to me is, is a big problem.
0: Yeah, I, so that was going to be my question: is if these things are if it if it seems so so obvious that um, it, it's a poor idea to legislate, why why are we seeing a push towards that?
4: Um, because I think it's a, it, it's seen as a symbolic victory. It's no different than banning plastic grocery bags or or plastic straws. It gives the illusion that we're really doing something for the environment. But on those cases as well, I think we're doing more harm than good. Uh, And so the government gets to say, hey, we're doing something about plastic waste, consequences, um, the consequences are irrelevant or we're just gonna conveniently kind of sweep them under the rug, Uh, but at least we can say we're doing something. And I really don't like when public policy is done in that way, I think we need to measure We have to measure public policy by its outcomes, uh, not by its meaning and how it makes us feel. Uh, And unfortunately, the latter seems to be the priority for the folks who are pushing for
0: this. Hmm. Do you think that there is a way that we could be... um you know, sort of, uh, is there a middle ground maybe is a question like what, what should we be doing to improve the environment or to, or to yep. reduce our footprint and stuff as opposed to these type of things that you're talking about?
4: Yes, we should be collecting all plastic waste and doing something called chemical depolarization. Um, virtually all plastics can be without getting too into the chemistry of it. Um, the chemical bonds can be repurposed and you can turn that into all sorts of different products and extend the life cycle um, for a long time. And so you can still get the benefits of plastic without it ending up in the environment, which is littering uh, and, and, and a bylaw offense or a crime, uh, or, and without it ending up in landfills. And there are some really great companies on the West Coast and in Alberta who do exactly this and they repurpose um, otherwise thrown away plastics into everything from Adirondack chairs to tiles for your bathroom to an additive that's included in the asphalt in the roads so that they're more durable and they don't get potholes and they don't have to be re-dug up and repaved every year and a half, two years. So there are a bunch of really, really awesome innovative technologies out there that are emerging and to some extent the bc government has acknowledged this they're starting to look at this more seriously um but it would appear that ottawa again is either either doesn't know that these things exist or doesn't care that they exist and that
0: that to me is a big problem Mm-hmm. Okay, well this is fantastic information, I think especially for, for people like myself who sort of just see these headlines and think, oh, okay, great, no more plastic straws, we must be doing something better, when in reality, yeah, I think a lot of issues like this are a bit more complicated than that. Um, where can people go if they, where can we direct them if they want to get a bit more information, want to learn more, or want to maybe even uh, speak up and, and get involved in these type of things?
4: Yeah, so I would encourage anyone who's listening who's who's maybe irritated by some of these policies to get involved whenever any level of government, it could be your local government. I know Vancouver has um, put forward and then pulled back on a variety of very silly policies uh, on this front. The province has done the same. The federal government has done the same. Definitely get involved in that sense. Um, And just express your opinions as a consumer because ultimately you're the person who's going to end up paying more. Um, And if you are like me and you care about your environmental impact uh, in many instances, the, the, the system the government is mandating may end up being worse for the government. So I encourage people as consumers to, to kind of raise their voice when, when possible. um, And just explain that, there is a better way forward. It's not ban or landfill. Um, There is a better way forward. We just have to have the courage uh, or the willingness um, to go that route and other countries do go that route uh, and they've had some success with it. And as we follow that, we can still have all the modern conveniences that we have right now without the irritation of your plastic straw or your paper straw disintegrating a quarter of the way through your drink, <laughs> uh, but at the same time, not having it end up in the ocean or the river or a public park or anything like that. And so there is a middle ground here, and uh, it's, I think it's worth fighting for.
0: I, yeah, you know what? Even just as you're sort of mentioning that, it sort of seems um, like a almost like a metaphor of so many things that I think we're sort of facing as a society right now is where do we find that middle ground? Um, David Clement is my guest. He's the North American Affairs Manager for the Consumer Choice Center. Thanks so much, uh, David. And you can find more at uh, ConsumerChoiceCenter.org. Thanks again.
4: Thank you very much.
0: Scott Johns filling in for Mike Smith on your BC day long weekend. Hope the weekend's been awesome. It's been great weather. Uh, It's been, you know, marginally hot. Uh, dry pride yesterday. That was fantastic. Uh, One of the things that people are talking about a lot right now is climate change and changing weather. It's been this long, hot summer that we've had here. Temperatures are breaking all over the United States, temperature records, and in other places, Europe, places like that. A lot of climate change, a lot of uh, weather, and with it, one of the things that I I definitely didn't anticipate uh, but we're starting to see happening, changes in insurance rates. Have you thought about your insurance lately and how much it costs and whether you have adequate enough insurance? I know that this is something that crossed my mind uh, with all the forest fires. There was a fire up on Mount Seymour earlier this summer. My house is near Mount Seymour and it was totally safe, but it did make me think I wonder if my insurance covers my house if it gets burned from a forest fire. Does that happen? And if so, do I need to upgrade my insurance in the event that this happens in the future? Here now to help us sort of unpack and understand how this is going to play out. Rob Dupree, he's IBC's National Director of Consumer and Industry Relations. Thanks so much for being here, Rob. Thanks for having me, Scott. So tell me, is insurance going up as we're seeing these weather patterns change?
5: Well, it's not a simple answer because everyone's insurance policy is different. And no one single event automatically increases premiums. Having said that, we know that inflation and the replacement cost of people's homes are increasing. And we've got not only wildfires, but we've got flooding and storms and tornadoes all across the country and around the
0: world that are putting pressure on people's premiums. So are people like, are there more houses or vehicles or just things that are insured in general being lost and being claimed now than say 10, 15 years ago? There's actually
5: more of these events. We're actually seeing an increase in severe weather, both in frequency and severity. So over the past decade, The insurance industry has been paying out on average about $2.2 billion in severe weather. The decade before, that number was just over 600 million. Wow. So we're just seeing a lot more dollars being impacted, just a lot more of these events from coast
0: to coast. And it just makes sense that that money being paid out is going to, the cost of that is going to be passed on to the consumer.
5: That's one area, yes. It's directly related to claims costs. And remember, insurance companies have insurance for these big, severe, catastrophic events. That's called reinsurance. Okay. So when we start hearing about some of these other events going on around the world, whether it's flooding in China or wildfires in Europe, these are all impacting the cost of reinsurance that the companies here in Canada are purchasing. So some of those costs can put pressure on individual
0: homeowners and tenants' insurance premiums. Hmm, Yeah, it's just that it just gets passed along, right? Just like inflation. Like as grocery stores have to pay more for their supply. They just pass that cost on to the end consumer. Now, one of the things that I think maybe you heard me mention, you know, there was a wildfire up on Mount Seymour. My house is in North Van. It made me sort of give pause to this idea of I should check on, on my insurance policy. Do you think that people are aware of whether or not they have coverage for these type of things? Uh, I guess my concern was that something was going to happen, and I would look and they would say, oh, this is a, a random incident, and your basic coverage doesn't cover this type of thing, so you need in the future I should change it to cover these kind of um, extreme weather events. I
5: would like to say that, yes, everybody knows their insurance policy and what's covered, But the reality is most people don't. It's something that they get a bill once a year, they pay it, and they typically don't have to make a claim. But standard home and tenant insurance policies cover damage from fire, whether that's a wildfire or some other type of fire that happens. And there's also optional coverage, like overland flood and earthquake coverage, These are optional that you can purchase and add on to your standard home insurance. And we want everybody to remember, the reality is people research a one-week vacation more than they research the insurance for likely their largest and costliest asset. We want to make sure that people are educated and understand what their policy covers
0: and don't be afraid to ask questions. My gosh, that statement is so true that we spend more time researching a one-week vacation. I actually just got back. I was uh, in a Soyuz for a week with my family, very, very close to the wildfire there, and we actually got evacuated. And one of the questions that came up was, hey, we booked this Airbnb on a credit card, If we have to be evacuated because of this, is that going to be covered? Will we get any sort of reimbursement or make good from having to, you know, book another hotel, you know, further away from the fire? Because this is really starting to affect all of these different industries, isn't it? It really is. And
5: the answer is maybe. Maybe you'll get some type of compensation. If you live in a Soyuz and you're under a mandatory evacuation order, your home insurance has something called additional living expense for things like hotel costs and other food. If you book your vacation through a credit card or you have some type of travel insurance, there could be some provisions in there that make sure that you get your refund or to make sure that you're compensated if your trip was cut short. So the short answer is if you're not able to continue on with your trip or if you're evacuated, Don't forget about your insurance. Understand what protection you have and
0: where you can get some compensation, man. It's a really uh, tough issue because I, like so many people, bought insurance any time that I would do something. I would go away, or you know, go to an all-inclusive in Mexico, or uh, purchase a new vehicle. It's like, oh yes, insure it, get everything, all this coverage. And I've been paying that insurance for you know a decade with no instances of needing it. And so then I start to question, uh, maybe I should, you know, save myself some dollars on my insurance. I I think the question is, am I overinsured? And I think that's a question that a lot of people ask. Where where do you net out on that as Canadians? Are Canadians overinsured? What do you think?
5: I don't think Canadians are overinsured. I would hope that Canadians would be protected for the coverage that they need for the specific locations and the stuff that they have. Because remember, insurance can be a bit confusing, but there are experts there to help guide you through that process. Many people have a home, a vehicle. They might even have some other things like a boat or a snowmobile. These are things that if you have insurance on it, to make sure that you review your insurance at least annually with an insurance representative, ask the questions and specifically say, do I have the right coverage and what other options are available? Because the insurance industry is continually evolving. We have more coverage options
0: available today than we did a decade or two ago. And, of course, the last thing that any of us want is to find ourselves in one of these scenarios and not have adequate insurance. Rob Dupree, he's IBC's National Director of Consumer and Industry Relations. Uh, Thanks so much for, for your time this morning, Rob. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season 6 of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.